My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud member of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. As you guys may have heard at the very beginning there, number one, welcome back. Number two, we had some really solid intro music there that was gifted to us and a lot of editing done today in today's episode by Joshua Knoll, the director of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. He is, of course, a good friend of mine. I met in college, and we have also working together on Systematic Ecology and a whole church podcast. So as you probably figured out by me mentioning at least two or three times, we are now a member of the Let Nothing Movie podcast of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. So what does that mean for you? It means that you're going to get more quality from me, thanks to Joshua, who is actually skilled at such things that I am not. Being a very technologically illiterate person, he's able to remove some of the more uh, annoying background noises here. You're going to hear like my chair, like the page flips, probably like uh, when the AC unit turns back on, like it inevitably will. He can take that away because he's good and gracious. And I'm very appreciative of his efforts as well. Kind of moving some of my longer pauses because I just need a, t- a second to catch my breath. I really appreciate that as well. So guys, if you haven't figured out right now what this means to me, it is very important to be a part of this organization to be with other Christians who are reaching out to others, asking the big questions, going out, not only just to have a simple conversation, but to actually get to the meat of the matter, expose certain things about ourselves and others so that we can have quality conversations about the gospel, about who God is and what he desires from us. That's what you're going to get by following any of the shows in that network. So guys, go ahead, check it out, see if it's for you. That's it for us there. As far as we are concerned, We are going to be heading into the book of Luke, chapter 9. We'll be starting with verses 1 through 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is one of the most important parts from a teaching perspective we get from the Bible. Jesus did not allow his disciples to remain static. If you want good followers, if you want good listeners, if you want good disciples, You don't leave them where they're at. You challenge them. And something that they can't totally control, they're going to screw up in. As we're going to see later on in in this chapter, they just keep screwing up in certain regards. But as part of their growth, what they need is to just get kicked out of the nest and sit into the real world to disciple, to to talk to others, to evangelize and heal and do all this miraculous stuff, all these miraculous works. Jesus knows that if he doesn't send them out to do this, they will not be prepared when he is gone. Because while it is great, it is tremendous that Jesus is on this earth at this time for this three-year period of his ministry. Obviously, he was alive before all that. It is going to come to an end because he's going to have to die, get resurrected, and go to heaven. What is going to happen if he didn't teach these men how to lead, how to talk about the gospel, how to have that confidence, that faith in the power of God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit to remove demons from people, to heal the sick and the lame and the blind and so on and so forth. If he doesn't do all that, 
if he does everything for them, he's a terrible teacher. A good teacher doesn't let his disciples, his students stagnate and gather dust. A good teacher must teach his students so that they can go and do the same for others. Jesus models this here for us because without it, the gospel will not spread as effectively as it has throughout the entirety of history. All of us, you and I, if you're a believer, we had someone or we will need to have someone who knows more about the Bible than us, knows more about life than us, and will then humbly teach us about what it means. I've had a lot of really great teachers in my time. I didn't just have the one. I have had several of these godly men and women in my lives, who, in my lives, in my life, who have been able to look at me and say, look, you think you're hot stuff. Let me lovingly beat that out of you. Let me teach you, this is how you interpret the Bible. This is how you don't interpret the Bible. This is how you read these stories in the context of where they came from. Without those men and women who were so much smarter than me in that regard, I'm completely lost. And that's why it's so important. Look, not everyone is called to be a teacher in the same regard as that. That is your spiritual gift. But everyone is called to make disciples. And part of being a good disciple is making other disciples. So we've got to get into the work. We've got to read all of this to learn what it means to ask questions, ask the big questions that people go, oh, I don't want to think about that. It makes me, uh, uh, it's, it's just a little too hard for my taste. No, don't resist that urge. Ask these questions. Go to these people and preach the word to them as well. We also see here that there will be times when we evangelize to people and they don't receive the good news well. Let me tell you right here, our success rate for evangelism is not always determined by people coming to faith. I'm in a personal evangelism class right now. It has been very helpful to me as someone who is very, uh, let's, let's just say, introverted by nature to talk to other people, to discuss the Bible with them, to talk about God and life and so on and so forth. It is extremely useful to do these things. But one of the things that he has hammered into our heads is success doesn't always mean conversion. Everyone is at different stages of their life. And we may just be the person who plants the seed. We may just be the person who they outright reject. And guess what? They never come to faith, no matter what happens, no matter how many people come to them. We don't know that. The point is we were faithful and we went to them. But as a part of this, no one really likes to talk about. Jesus tells them, to do something that in their culture shows immense disrespect. And that is this shaking off of the dust and the dirt from their feet, from their sandals to say, look, these people, they just don't get it that we've done what we could. And there's going to be plenty of points in our lives when there's people around us. We just have to do that. That doesn't mean we give up on them. That doesn't mean we say, well, I've done everything I can. Well, they're going to hell. No, that is a way of showing like, look, I'm washing my hands of this. I did what I was supposed to do. It is not my fault if we did things correctly, if we did things well, that you did not come to faith. Jesus is telling them this is a symbolic way of showing that they were unbelieving and that they have no excuse for not having heard the word of God. When it's their time, they die on this earth. They come before God. And God asked them, didn't any of my people tell you about who I was? They do not have the right to say no one did. That doesn't mean we rejoice in that, that 
they're getting, oh, they're just getting what's coming because they didn't believe. No, that's awful. That's terrible. No one should ever rejoice in that. But it gives them no excuse because we were being faithful. So I mentioned it a little before, but this in the day was a symbol for Jewish people. Whenever they passed through a Gentile town, it was kind of a symbolic way of them just shaking the dust off their feet to go, look, I, I don't believe and associate myself with anything they're doing there. Like all that pagan worship, all the idolatry, all the terrible evil things they're doing, I want nothing to do with it. I just had to pass through that town. And you get that sense. It can definitely be taken the wrong way if you were to go down that path. But the spirit of it is what Jesus is hoping for his disciples to learn here. And for this to happen to a Jewish city was a massive rebuke. And the meaning would be very apparent to anyone who saw this action. If the disciples went through a city, they didn't receive the gospel well, they shook off the dust from their feet. That was a slap in the face. And that's exactly what Jesus wants them to do. Because sometimes we need that slap in the face to go, you're not where you need to be. Next up, we're going to verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about what was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, as far as we are aware, Jesus never chose to directly meet with Herod Antipas, who is the Herod, the Tetrarch we talk about right now. And that's for the best. I hate to say it. Because Herod needed Jesus just as much as anyone else. But sometimes there will be people who are curious about Christianity for the wrong reasons. Herod was not coming to Jesus because he he saw his need for a personal savior. He saw a threat. He saw someone who was fomenting what he saw as rebellion. So he said, well, I might do something about that. When these people come into our lives, we should never placate them or accept their presence inside of the church for false reasons, because they will always seek to control the message to fit their needs and not God's. I'm not saying you ban them from ever being in the church. I'm not saying you never associate with them. You never talk to them. We don't give up on their souls so long as they're alive, but the lost have no business making decisions for the church. Herod had no business telling Jesus what to do. So Jesus didn't seek him out. Also, we see that John the Baptist has been murdered by Herod. We had talked about it before. This is something that was going to happen. Here it is. We don't get the full story in the Gospel of Luke at this point in time compared to the other Gospels. But John died doing what was right. He called out sin, and he was punished for the truth. And John can do that because John had things going on right in his life. We are called to call out sin. Like we've discussed before, make sure when we do so, we are not talking with a gigantic log coming out of our own eye, where it's very apparent of the sin we're doing. And even if it's not apparent, that we are asking forgiveness for the things we do in secret that no one else knows about. And there's plenty of that going on in every single one of our lives. So we see John's martyrdom here is just one of the first of many that would become a template for Christians across the years. And he should be praised for his faithfulness. Even to the end of his life, he could have renounced Jesus. He could have renounced God and said, I, I, Herod, I believe in you instead, or I believe in the emperor, or I, I submit myself to the authority of the Sanhedrin. No, he didn't do that. He remained faithful, and we are called to do the same. 
chances are many of you listening, you're probably not going to have your heads lopped off. You're probably not going to be tortured for your faith. But if we were, we would still need to be prepared. There are plenty of our brothers and sisters right now across the entire globe who are having to deal with that as a daily reality. We get way too comfortable for our own good in America, and I'm very grateful for that. Don't hear me wrong. I'm glad that God has blessed us enough to have this in our lives. But we need to be prepared for any amount of persecution, no matter how small, to remain faithful. We don't get to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. Remain steadfast. So we move on from there to verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds, oh, excuse me, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and, called, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside, to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces. Luke continues to showcase Jesus' power over nature as God in the flesh. This is just another way of him proving that to the people around him using this wondrous miracle. Jesus knows, God knows, every living thing needs to eat in order to survive. Jesus sustains their physical need for a moment, even knowing that they're still going to need to eat later on. Like, Jesus doesn't do this every single time the disciples need food. He doesn't do this every single time there's a crowd around him. Yet, there was a need that needed to be met, and Jesus saw it. What needs to be stated here is God will always look out for our physical needs, but far more important to him and to us, as at least it should be, is our spiritual needs. Look, we're only going to be here so long. The oldest living person that we can prove outside of the gospel, excuse me, outside of Genesis, lived to be about 120 years old. There are other unconfirmed reports out there, but that's only 120 years. And you look in the grand spectrum of the years we have on this earth, that's nothing. We're all going to die at one point in time. Our bodies are just going to wear down. We're not going to get the food we need. We're not going to get the water we need. We're not going to have the health we used to have. Far more important than our physical needs are our spiritual needs. In other gospels, we see the people following Jesus simply to see the miracles and who care nothing about his messages. This is completely missing the point that what they wanted was a magician. What they wanted was a butler. That is not who Jesus is. He's not there for magic tricks. He's not there just to say, oh, well, man, I could really use $15 today you know, for a meal or something like that. Uh, hey, Jesus, give me that 15 bucks. It's like, no, that's not how it works. He can do those things if he chooses to. But these momentary concerns are not as important as our spiritual welfare. Next up, we go through 18 through 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's a lot. This this chapter has a lot packed into it. Sometimes you'll see uh, preachers like break this up section by section and just do a single you know sermon on that. Like I could have done that, but that's not. I'm just not about that right now. There's a lot we have to unpack here, and that's okay. Here we see Peter when asked a question by Jesus, but who do you say that I am? Answers correctly. Jesus is the Christ of God, but he still doesn't know who Jesus is yet. We can have the right answers every single day. We can have our, our Sunday school answers. It's like, oh, uh, who, you know, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. You know, that, that's great. Yeah, well done. Like, who, who killed Goliath? David. Yeah, that's great. We can know all those things. But if we don't have a personal relationship with him, if we haven't given ourselves up to him, then we truly know nothing. Our, our knowledge is worthless without application. And Peter and his disciples have not applied it fully yet. And we'll get further on in this chapter about how they screw that up. Here we see Jesus ask one of the most important questions ever asked in Scripture and in the history of the world, and the one on which our salvation depends on. He asks, but who do you say that I am? Every single person who has ever existed has to wrestle with this question, whether or not they knew Jesus existed or not. You and I have to do the exact same thing. If Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, God himself, who came down to this world to save us from our sins, then he is worthy to die on the cross for our sins to save us from ourselves. If he isn't, then we are what Paul would call the most to be pitied for wasting our time on a lie. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, I need to pack up and go elsewhere because I, I'm not spending you know, 30 plus thousand dollars on a seminary for a God that doesn't exist. It is completely worthless for me to do so. It's a waste of time if Jesus isn't who he says he is. But if he is, that changes everything. This is also one of the reasons why it is so important that Jesus predicts his death on the cross for the first time in Luke. It's going to happen at least two more times, if I'm remembering correctly. He knew it would happen beforehand and still went through with it all for our sake. There's not a man or woman alive who would have done the same thing without his love in our hearts and minds correcting who we used to be. We just went through uh, Easter a couple weeks ago, and we get that wonderful reminder of Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. He's not on the cross anymore. He is alive, ascended in heaven after being death. That is a glorious message we should all be praising. But where do you stand with this? Who is Jesus to you? But who do you say that I am? Ask 
that question, who is Jesus to you? Because across history, I mean, you get your your standard argument was uh, Lewis, not the, he didn't really come up with it so much as he kind of popularized it, which is the liar, lunatic, or Lord. And some people would rightfully, I would say, add a legend as the fourth L in this conundrum. So if Jesus is a liar, then he's worthless. If Jesus was just making all this up so he could have disciples, so he could get money or to be with a bunch of women or what have you, then Jesus is worthless. He cannot be good enough to die for our sins. He's a charlatan. We should have nothing to do with him. If Jesus is just some lunatic who legitimately thought that he was the son of God, but just was addled in the mind to the point where this was reality to him and obviously wasn't reality to the rest of us, he is likewise worthless. This is a madman who we're basing all of our decisions off of. We should have nothing to do with him. If Jesus Christ is a legend, if he is not historically uh, true, if he didn't exist ever and he was made up by someone later on, he is likewise worthless. I know I'm speed running through this whole conundrum. There's a lot of really good books out there on this subject. I mean, I mean, just look up Lewis himself for that. But if Jesus is a legend, if these stories are not true, we are wasting our lives. But if Jesus is Lord, if he is who he says he is, that changes everything. That means I need to listen to him. Because no other person in the totality of existence has done what he has done. And they will never do that because it's only one who needs to. Who is Jesus to you? In light of this, and I really like how Luke sets this up, and I like how Jesus sets it up with Jesus being very down, very negative. In light of this, if we have accepted his word as truth, then you and I We must deny ourselves and walk not for ourselves, but for his sake, no matter the cost. No one wants to hear this. No one wants to be told, take up your cross and follow me. No one wants to be told, hey, if you want to save your life, lose it. Yet that's exactly what Jesus says, because the people who are truly his will do that. We will give up ourselves, not to profit the world, but to profit for his sake to reach others around us so that they may have what we have. Now, this last verse here, uh, 27, but you know, the, the those here who would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, there's a lot of debate about this verse here. Let's quash it all right here now. What it is not saying is that Jesus was predicting that he was coming back before all the disciples died. There's some people believe that, you know, uh, as far as we're aware, historically speaking, John was the last disciple to die. He was the last apostle to die. And they were waiting, oh, as soon, uh, right before John dies, Jesus is going to come back, is what the early church thought. It was like, no, they're unfortunately just misinterpreting this verse, which is very easy to see why, with the way things are worded. I mean, even in the Greek, it's, it's pretty much the same in that regard. That is not what it is saying. What it is saying is that they would see his kingdom established upon his defeat over death and sin following his resurrection. But also, and what is about to happen Three of them are about to see the transfiguration, which we'll get into right now, going to verses 28 through 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So the transfiguration is just one of those like weird, wacky tales we get in the Gospels of like, wait, what, what just happened here? We were just talking about, you know, denying ourselves. And now Jesus is, you know, going Super Saiyan or, or something like that. It's like <laughs> not quite how it is. Jesus's physical appearance right now is changing outwardly to let them see what his inward self looks like. He is in glory. He is showing who he truly is as this God, as this man God who is above them, who is God. And they're not going to fully understand until after the resurrection what is going on here. And when that happens, they will then boldly proclaim the truth of what they had witnessed. And the reason, sorry, there's a jet going around right now. So hopefully you don't hear that, but I will. So as I was saying, like if they start telling people about what just happened there, they're not going to have the context for why it's important because they still don't know Jesus. They don't appreciate the value of what is transpiring before them until after the resurrection. And it finally clicks. They finally get to that point. In my opinion, this is when they come to faith after the resurrection. And there are a lot of people who say otherwise, and that's okay. We're open to debate there. The point is they do eventually find faith. Jesus made them wait to say it out loud because he didn't want to disturb his ministry and theirs. If they start talking a bunch of nonsense at the very start right here about what just happened there and it's proven wrong or they misinterpreted it and then spoke to other people about it, people are going to go, wait, didn't you say this before, but now you're saying this? it would hinder their ministry. So by telling them, don't say anything, not only is this continuing the theme of, hey, I don't need to be pronounced as king yet, that's a very bad idea, but also he's protecting their image, which thank God someone is doing that for some of us because we're not good enough, especially me, at protecting our image, even when we think we are. We also see in the Transfiguration that Moses and Elijah are there to represent the law and the prophets. Now, for those of you who um, don't know that much about Christianity or uh, Judaism and the Old Testament, well, let me explain a little bit about who each of these are. Moses, of course, you probably know him from Prince of Egypt, from Ten Commandments, so on and so forth. He led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of captivity, and with God created the law for the Israelites to be governed under. So he was a he's a very important figure in uh, their history, in their lawmaking, in the creation of them as a nation. That they all looked up to him on a pedestal. It's like look, and rightly so for all the good things that he did. Also, we see Elijah. Now, Elijah was one of many prophets we see in the Bible. He, as far as we know, did not write any scripture, but in Second Kings and in Chronicles, we see him. Excuse me, no, First Kings and Second Kings. My bad, and in Chronicles. We see him speaking against the evils of Israel when the two nations are split. We have Israel and Judah. He is primarily concerned with Ju uh, excuse me, Israel. He fights against the prophets of Baal. 
He calls down fire from heaven to consume these evil prophets, which, by the way, that might be important later on for something that happens in this chapter. Just happened to think about that on the way. He does this to let God's name be proclaimed. He is seen as the prophet among prophets for all of them, hired in Isaiah, hired in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, so on and so forth. So for them to submit to Jesus's authority shows who he truly is. These two men were amazing. They weren't always perfect. They screwed up immensely. But as far as everyone else is concerned, if I could just be like Moses, if I could just be like Elijah, I'd be so much better in my walk with God. They submit to Jesus's authority because he is higher than them, which is going to be very upsetting to the Pharisees who highly respect the both of these figures, yet wish nothing but death for Jesus Christ, showing no matter their devotion, no matter that head knowledge we were talking about before, no, doesn't matter how much you know, if you don't know Jesus, it's worthless. And they knew more, way more than you and I. Like we've talked before, I don't know how to memorize things well. <laughs> My brain just doesn't work that well. Like all the Hebrew I've had to learn right now, it's going to leave the moment I am done with this class. Praise God. Hopefully in two weeks after this exam is done, and I'll, I'll be richer for the experience but I'll never have to parse another verb in my life if I don't want to. But if it was a requirement for me to leave this seminary and be able to parse like just a single Hebrew verb, I would fail because my memorization is off. When the Pharisees do this, they could do it far better than you and I. They knew the scriptures and yet they didn't know God. Their knowledge was worthless. Don't be like them. So we'll move on from there to verses 37 all the way through 45. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my, my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Jesus, once again, shows his awesome power by removing the demon, this inflicting unclean spirit from the boy's body. It's nothing to him. You guys ever watch any exorcism movies? I mean, just, uh, just using the exorcist as a basis, uh, not your paranormal activities or, oh my gosh, what was the most recent one that came out? Oh, that was so bad. It wasn't a Pope's exorcist. That was bad too. Oh my gosh. You, oh, it was just awful. Exorcism as we believe it from pop culture is this huge ordeal. It takes all these hours, all these days of reciting Bible verses and using God's name and the Holy Spirit in Jesus and, the demons have just so much power over us and Jesus and people who, as we'll later see, time go on, 
it, faithfully working with him, it is so anticlimactic. It's not even funny. He just says, leave, and they leave. But the disciples failed to do this after Jesus had given them the authority to do so. So there's some, something we need to do with this. There's some people believe that uh, that blessing Jesus gave them was gone after they came from their ministry. Uh, some people say, well, some of them never removed demons while they were around. I mean, speaking of a high population in Israel, I mean, it'd be ridiculous if every single city had someone with a demon-possessed person in them. I mean, but it still could have happened if God had wanted that to happen. I, I'm kind of on the fence on this. I think that it kind of, his their authority ended when they came back because it's obvious to me that they don't have faith in Jesus right now. So when they command a spirit to lead, they're going to laugh at them. Kind of like what we see in Acts with like, you know, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are you to the sons of uh, Sceva, Siva? How the heck do you want to say that name? We see their faithlessness regardless of what is going on here. The only thing that can remove demonic possession and oppression is faith in Jesus Christ, true faith. Yet, Jesus, despite their pathetic nature, besides every stupid thing they've ever said or done, he has kindness and compassion on them and the father and the child, despite everyone's unbelief, and he delivers the boy from harm. I've been reading right now uh, for class through the book of Amos and the book of Jonah. And we see in those times, this is a point where Israel and Judah are split up, but both kingdoms are not following God. And yet God has blessed them immensely with territorial gains, with military might, with trade, with money. And yet they don't worship him. Why would God let them prosper despite their wickedness? Because he loves us. I think it's one of the Peters, I wish I had written this down beforehand, where he says, God is slow to anger so that people might come to faith or something to that regard. I know I just totally butchered it. It's like, so that people would repent. God is slow to anger here. Jesus is slow to be angry at them. He speaks out against them, but he still has compassion on them to save this child's life, to show them how things are supposed to be. God does the same for the Israelites of old, to the Israelites of this day, uh, that Jesus is in and to us now. He hasn't changed. Thank God he is slow to anger. Thank God he is slow to punish me for when I do all the terrible things I have done. And we should be saying the same thing. I want you to be saying that as well because I know we're all thinking of those things we've done. Yet Jesus covers them. Yet Jesus still comes to us with compassion and removes these, this evil from our lives. We also see here that Jesus continues to prophesy his own death, which further shines a light on their unbelief. He has said this twice. Now, granted, this one is a little more, not vague, but not as like, I'm going to die. But it's still going to happen because of him being delivered into the hands of men. That's what he's saying. It's like the, the implication being, I'm going to die. But there's this weird passage we get. It was concealed from them concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. What does this mean? Why would Jesus not want them to know? Because they're not ready for it. God can choose to conceal truths from us because we're not ready. Now, this could be just something we need to apply to ourselves, or it could even be the fact that we need to come to faith. I have been in conversations with people where I am on my 
a game. Like I've got the scripture verses memorized, which is very weird for me to do, by the way, as I've already stated. I've got the questions they have. I've got the answers already ready. It's like, okay, you're going to ask problems. Blah, blah, blah. I got this. I'm good to go. And yet it's like I'm talking to a brick wall. I have almost seen that spiritual veil over someone's eyes that is just preventing them from seeing the truth. It is so maddening. It's like, why can't I just reach out and tear this veil? But God hasn't allowed it to happen. Not all of us are called to freedom. As much as God would love for everyone to do that, sometimes, and we don't have to like it either. I don't like it. Sometimes it's not going to work because he hasn't chosen to reveal himself to them in the same way. Although once again, that doesn't get them off the hook because they're making choices. They're making decisions based off of who they are and what they are. God is not changing their minds for them. He's preventing information from being understood. There's a very big difference between the two. And we can have that debate later on in Romans. So we're going to move on from there to verses 46 through 50. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. I should like to how <laughs> obviously Jesus is in the crowd right now, but like he just has some child on hands. Like, look, I need to use you as a, as a demonstration. Come here, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, 48, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Here we see a tender rebuke and a scathing rebuke from Jesus. And once again, these disciples, it's like, how do you not see it? You've been with this man for about three years. But then I recall myself and what I've done. I'm literally in seminary right now. Do you know how many times I've been sinning? More than zero, which is what it should be. I mean, at the end of the day, how, how stupid do you have to be, Christian? How stupid do you have to be? You know what he's done. You know all the things. You've seen people get healed before you. You've seen people turn their lives around. You've seen the way God's forgiven you for what you've done, and yet you keep coming back here. You keep not believing in him. Well, yeah, I'm human. I'm screwed up. Even if we were among the disciples, chances are we would have done the exact same things they did. People like to rag on the Israelites for not believing in God after him delivering them from Egypt. How easy is it for us to forget what God has done moments after something has happened that sounds like the end of the world? We don't have food, God. You're going to give the sun out here to die, God. That's what they said. And we go, oh, those Israelites, those, those ye of little faith, this you know faithless generation. Yes, I'm with Jesus on that. I'm not part of that. No, no, we do the exact same thing with more evidence, I might add, than they ever had. We know the end of the story. We know who Jesus is. <laughs> I mean, unless this is your first time going through it, in which case, welcome. I'm more than happy to go along with this ride with you. But like, we know the story. He comes back. He is resurrected. He saves the world and saves us from ourselves. And yet we say, hmm, I know I'm not supposed to, but no one else is watching. I'm not, I'm not supposed to, but I mean, it'll put me ahead in life if I talk down to this person and say, oh, they're not worthy of this promotion, but I am. Because of this, and you know what the terrible thing they did? Well, we're doing terrible things too that we're not talking about because then it makes us look bad. Just as an example there, the disciples are just as stupid as us. 
But I would argue that you and I are worse off when we sin because we have more context than they ever did. Yet, Jesus doesn't give up on us, even though he rightly should. But because God is unfair, and that is a good thing, he keeps having mercy on us. Jesus sees them arguing who is the greatest, which, by the way, if you've been following along, they have not proven outside of their initial missionary mission, which they did really well on. But we've also seen them screw up with the demon. We've seen them not really understand who Jesus truly is, not understand the prophecies he's making. And yet they have the audacity to ask, which one of us is the best? And I'd hate to be anyone who isn't Peter, James, or John, because clearly Jesus, it looks like he likes them more than everyone else if I'm in that group. And you know, don't forget, who's a member of this group at this time? Judas. Judas is arguing with them about who's the greatest. It doesn't say uh, they all argued about the greatest except for Judas, or except for Simon, or except for Levi. No, every single one of them is arguing this. And one of those people is going to give up Jesus to Romans and the Jew- Jewish authorities to be killed. And yet one of these people is going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows, before his death. One of these is about to call Jesus. Uh, two of these are about to ask Jesus to send fire down in an unbelieving Samaritan village, as we're about to see in a little bit. And they have the audacity to say, which one of us is the best? Jesus doesn't take this lying down. He rightly destroys this line of thinking and gets their mindset on working for his sake and not their own. It's like, look, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. And that makes no sense to our human minds until we think about it a little further in context of who Jesus is. The greatest Christian among us who has ever lived, we probably don't know their names. They were just faithful. They were just talking to people who needed needed someone to look after them. They gave money and said nothing about it. They had a kind word to say to someone. Chances are these unsung heroes have no name, as least recorded in history. Yet these were the greatest because they did the work faithfully and humbly. You and I need to do the same thing as a very prideful person by nature. I need to read this first over and over again, these verses, because I'm not as great as I think I am. I've denied Jesus to other people. I said I'm the greatest when there is nothing in my life that proves that. Let us focus on what matters. And what matters is following what God has said to do. And that is to look after those who have no one to look after themselves, to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. That's it. That's that's the entire Bible right there. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else we get in this book is based off of one of those two, of how to do this and how not to do this. And as we see in our own lives, this is something, this who is the greatest that is happening even in churches today. Unfortunately, it's just a reality. Let me say this. No member of a church is more important than the other, from the oldest convert there to the newest, or from the pastor to the greeter. And I know there's an anti-greeter bias. (laughs) on the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. And I can't say that I approve, but I find it funny. Look, not a single one of those people I mentioned is the greatest. We will only truly be the greatest when we're working collectively. And I know communism, that's not what I'm saying. Don't let anyone tell you differently. 
That's not how this works. Look, collectively as a group, we are supposed to be working together for the greater good, not for our good, not for the good of we're setting up this government based on these ideals where everyone would get along or what have you because people are people. We're going to screw up. But guess what? That happens in churches too. But still, we have to seek that out. We have to seek that community where the communism comes from, the community and love one another to serve one another, to give up what I have for the sake of someone else, for them to do the same for me. If they have more than me, which chances are living on the very tiny seminary budget, they're going to have more than me. But at the end of the day, it's about living in that community. No one should be left out of that community simply because they're they're not as great as the pastor. They haven't brought as many people to faith as the missionary or what have you. We need to be like that child. Jesus says, be like them. Have that faith like a child. Do this for the sake of others, not for yourselves. Look, everyone has their place in the church. Everyone, whether you're in children's ministry, whether you just show up to listen to the message and you want to apply it to your life, we should all be serving somewhere. And that may be part of your journey. Doesn't matter where we are. If we have him, if he has taken control of our lives, and that is a very good thing, you and I, we will be counted righteous at the end because we ran the race well. It does not matter where I end up, what I've done, so long as I did what I was supposed to, so long as we do what we're supposed to. This same line of thinking is exactly why Jesus rebukes the, the disciples for talking down the fellow disciple who casted out demons. Now, chances are this probably arose from jealousy at their inability to remove the demon from the boy earlier. But it also proves that any hierarchy that we create for ourselves means nothing when it comes to what we are called to do. Like, look, I, I'm very, I'm going to say a very un-Protestant uh, thing right now, a very unbaptist thing. I like the hierarchy of the Catholic Church to a degree. <laughs> I think it's great that you have, you know, this bishop is in charge here. This cardinal is in charge here. The pope is in charge of this. That sounds amazing. Like, yes, organization is someone who... The only organization I ever get is from like writing out an outline or a book. I really love when people are good at organization. That way they know this is this the poor being fed here. The widows are being cared for here. You know, uh, this outreach center for the homeless is here. Like, yes, let's have an organization that takes care of all that. But those people are not more important. Any hierarchy we remit, we ever create is going to be flawed because men are making it. The disciples are men. They're screwed up. And they're letting jealousy, most more than likely in this passage, take control to where they tell this person, you're not doing it the way we're doing it. You should follow us. And that's not how these things work. I say all those things. Look, if there is a Catholic ministry out there that is caring for the homeless and you say, well, I can't go out there, then it looks like I'm approving of everything they believe in. No, they are doing God's work by looking out for the homeless. If there's a Presbyterian mission looking after survivors of some horrible plague, let's say, let's just... Let's just say AIDS epidemic, looking for survivors of HIV AIDS. And you say, well, I don't want to look like I approve of their lifestyle because, well, oh, they got they got that from being gay or, or what have you. It's like, no, we're missing the point. Look after the people God has called us to. If God calls you to that, even if you're a Baptist and it's a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Greek Orthodox, what have you, that is looking after these people here, you're not giving up your beliefs to help them out. You're working with your fellow Christians to do good in the world. Do that. Don't let labels and hierarchies get 
in the way of doing God's mission, which never ends, no matter how long we're alive. There is too much division within the church, even within the same denomination. I was making fun of Baptists. I was making fun of Presbyterians and Catholics and what have you. Look, it is every single true Christian denomination. I specify the word true because a lot of people say they are, and they're not. There will always be tenets of scripture that we must fight to the death to preserve. But not every facet of a denomination's belief is worth this kind of zeal. I'm a full immersion baptism kind of person. I've said it before. That doesn't mean I don't associate with people who got sprinkled. It doesn't mean I say, oh, well, you're illegitimate and God doesn't love you. Like, no, I believe this is how it should be done. But I also see that person still made a proclamation of faith that said, Jesus Christ has changed me and I need to love them and look after them. And they need to do the same to me if we're doing this together, if we want things to work better. That's why I love being part of this ministry. There are so many different beliefs brought up in this podcasting network, some of which I really don't agree with. And yet I still love these men. I still love these men for what they're doing because they're trying to follow Jesus. We're working on the same thing. We are all working to make Christ's name known. Denominations don't matter when it comes to this point. So if we're fighting amongst ourselves, oh, oh, you you baptize babies? Oh, well, clearly you don't understand how this whole salvation things works because a baby can't make the decision. And yet I agree with the uh, sentiment behind that. But at the end of the day, look, does it really hurt anyone for that baby to get sprinkled or super soakered as it had to be done during COVID? No. Look, ignore the stupid disagreements and focus on the disagreements that matter and then be unified. Read John. Read the final things Jesus says to his disciples that he prays about them. Like, let them be as one as you and I are one, Father. That's what we should be. How are people supposed to see the unity that he is supposed to bring us if we don't create it ourselves? If we don't work with other people, other Christians who don't think the exact same things we do, Jesus didn't make them the exact same way when he taught them. Look, Jesus is literally perfect, and he still didn't do that. He taught them how things should be done. We do not create many versions of ourselves when we teach. That is the worst way of going about things, because guess what? We're screwed up. We do things incorrectly. Like There are people out there who can preach way better than me by not going verse through verse, and that is perfectly fine. That is better for them to do that, and it'd be constrained by what I would demand that they do. No. How are people supposed to see the unity he's supposed to bring us if we don't have it ourselves? Just some food for thought there. So we're about to finish up chapter 9. This went about as long as I was expecting. We'll be in verses 51 through 62 to finish off the book of, uh, excuse me, chapter 9 of the book of Luke. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to, bring, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But he, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's an unfortunate reality mixed in all of this. Instant. Sometimes we see those who are living in unbelief and we wish them harm. We see these CEOs that make billions and trillions of dollars, what have you, and are treating their workers unfairly. And there's a call within us that goes, that is unjust. Something must be done. But that initial righteous anger gets twisted. I mean, like, man, I wish I had that money. I know if I had that money, I would be looking after my workers. I would be doing all these wonderful things. I would be giving to charities. I'd still spend a lot on myself, you know, but, you know, it's balanced out by all that good stuff I'd be doing. Or just we see someone successful who has obviously gained it by illicit means. And we go, man, I wish I had that life. I wish I could just order food whenever I wanted from wherever I wanted and not be worried about the bill. I wish I could have all these beautiful women and men in my life and they could just do whatever I told them to do. It's like those are evil, sinful things in our minds that started started from a place of righteous anger. We need to be careful that when we see injustice and sin in the world, we are not led astray by our baser desires. We are still focused on bringing good into the world. We can call. Look, look. I think Bashar al-Assad, uh, president of Syria, or whatever he's calling himself these days, and Erdogan, uh, leader of Turkey right now, are some of the most despicable men on this planet right now. Just using them, just two people that came to mind first. It, it would be better if they were not in power right now. I think most people would agree with that statement. But if I wish death upon them, say, God, just strike them down and things will be better. Like, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. Because guess what? Someone else is going to fill their place. And I'll have another name I'm angry at. Doesn't matter who. And what a terrible, spiteful place to be. To demand that this person die because they offend me. That's not the gospel. This way of thinking is always wrong. Even when they hurt us and deny God's work in their lives. I do not get to say, Lord, curse that man. Unless God has directed me to do so in accordance to his justice. I don't get to say those words. And guess what? He's probably never going to give me that ability. (laughs) Number one, because he knows how I would use it. And number two, because that's probably not what he needs to do right now in that person's life. Let us all remember just how far away we were before Jesus took us as his own. And we need to then extend that same kindness and mercy to those who aren't there yet. And even to those who will never arrive. That's right. Even to people who will never receive Jesus. Jesus will deliver judgment and justice on his time and not our own. And it is always a great sorrow when those who die as a result of their own folly don't know him. That is eternity in hell. I should never praise that as a reality. I should thank God he's removed me from that curse, but I should never celebrate this person did this to me. They're rotten in hell for eternity. I'm so happy about that. No, never have that belief. It doesn't bring God pleasure to send that person to hell. And by the way, he's not really sending them. He's confirming the choices they already made to deny him. And the same should be true of us. Don't gain schadenfreude, that German term of taking pleasure from the misery of others. It is bad. And I am the worst of the worst in that regard. Schadenfreude is like one of my favorite words because it describes, oh, yes, they got what they deserved. I feel so better about myself and all the terrible things I'm doing. No, we should 
always mourn those who die without knowing them, but don't remain there. Our priority should always be to those who have who yet live and deny him so that we can love them as God loved us first. The Samaritans didn't need God to send fire down from heaven upon them. And the reason they have such an issue with Jesus, by the way, is because they believed in worshiping God here and the Jews believed in worshiping God in Jerusalem. So they didn't want him in their village because he believed that the temple was in Jerusalem and his eyes were set there. That's where he needed to go to die. So this is on a cultural misunderstanding. James and John want these people to die because by rejecting Jesus, oh, they're rejecting James and John. And that's bad. You can't have that. That's not how this works. Let's also see in the end of this passage here, there is nothing that takes priority over God, not family, not the cares of this world or our own desires. Nothing takes priority over him. He must always come first. This doesn't mean we don't care about our families. This doesn't mean we don't care about our friends or the people around us, or our coworkers, what have you. It doesn't mean that we don't care about those closest to us anymore or ignore them. But it does mean that if we compromise ourselves for their sake, our witness has taken a tremendous hit. Oh, this whole God thing, he's pretty important to you until I need something or until they need something. Like, what does that say about us, where our, where our treasure is, where our hearts are? If we set out on these other ventures instead of doing what we're supposed to, what we're called to do. Just a lot of food for thought there. This is going to be over an hour long. Who knows how this gets pared down by Josh. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you guys once again for listening to the show. Please, if you get the chance, leave me a five-star review just to help us on whatever podcasting platform you use. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at uh, servingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching the name MC Ashley. If you're likewise interested in attending the Every Tribe Denomination and Tongue Convention that is happening on May 11th to the 13th in Chapel Hill, then I have been given a free promo code for you all to use. This code is UNMOVED, that's all caps, UNMOVED, which will give you $20 off of your tickets. If you're all interested as well in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. You can contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast.gmail.com. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to His will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. <laughs>